Well, Carrie Kell uh, tells the story of when she was in seminary. Uh, she had a friend, uh, it was uh, the 65-year-old Chinese lady that she had befriended in seminary. Her name was Sumi. And they went on a mission trip together. And uh, during that mission trip, they went out uh, for dinner one night. And as they were out at dinner, uh, the waiter comes to their table and, and Sumi and, and Carrie uh, tell this waiter that they're going to, about to pray uh, in a minute and give thanks for the food and ask the waiter if there's anything that they could pray for for him and his life. And, 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 and he, he obliged and kind of gave them a couple things, some personal prayer requests and some things about his family that they could be praying for. And then uh, they say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll pray for you. And he he goes off to tend to another table. And just then, Sumi, uh, Carrie's friend, says, Sir, come back. Sir, come back. Carrie's like, man, what, what's going on? The, the waiter turns back and comes back to their table. And Sumi says, I just wanted to let you know we're going to be praying in Jesus' name. He's like, okay. Uh, and so, uh, and then Carrie was like, well, that was, that was kind of special for you to say that. And she's like, what, what is going on there? Why, why did you call him back to let him know you were going to be praying in Jesus' name? And, and Sumi explained that where she was from uh, and in her life growing up, she would always hear uh, people praying, but they prayed to all kinds of different gods. They'd pray for, uh, to, to a God of the, of the harvest or uh, to a God of a specific season or to various gods about various things. Uh, and, and early in her life, she was in high school, Sumi tells the story, and she, I think she was 17 or 18 years old, and it was her sister's wedding day. And it was, it was calling for just thunderstorms all day. It was cloudy. And so Sumi was really torn up about this. Wasn't a believer, atheistic family, uh, kind of some pagan deities that they would call out to, but that was about it. And so Sumi starts praying to all these gods uh, and starts naming all the different gods, the God of rain and the God of all these different. So she's praying to all these gods and, and nothing happens. And then she remembers uh, some memory from when she was younger, remembering hearing somebody talk about praying to a God named Jesus. And so she thinks, I'll try that one. Uh, and so she prays uh, uh, to Jesus, prays in Jesus' name, and she says, just then, uh, suddenly the, the, the weather turns uh, and the weather clears up, and it was a perfectly clear day um, for the wedding, despite all of the forecasts uh, that were, that were uh, said for rain and the forecast for that day. And so Sumi, from that point on, she uh, goes on to, to uh, seek out people who would tell us, who is this Jesus? I just, what, what, is, what is special about his name? What is powerful? What is so different about this God named Jesus? And from that point on, she ends, up, she ends up meeting some missionaries, and they tell her about what is so special about Jesus, and she turns from her sins and trusts in Christ. And from that point on, at every opportunity, Carrie said she would always tell people if she was helping in some way, letting them know this is in Jesus' name because Jesus is different and Jesus' name is powerful. If I'm praying for you, I'm praying in Jesus' name because Jesus is different and Jesus is powerful. That marked her life, her experience of, of, uh, of, of who Jesus was and what he was able to do. Now, I don't want to say too much by that, by that illustration. I don't know all the details of what was going on there and, and uh, exactly what was happening. But I, I, I do, we could get into kind of theological weeds with, with all of that. But Sumi understood that there was something different about Jesus and that there was power in the name of Christ. As Christians, we cannot forget the power of Jesus. As we look at Acts chapter 3 this morning, I, I want us to see this. Since Jesus has clearly proven to be the promised Messiah, we should look for him to do promised, powerful Messiah-like things. All right, so since Jesus has, has clearly proven himself to be the promised Messiah, 
we should look to him to do powerful Messiah-like works. If you have a Bible, open to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, again, we're, we're just coming out of that passage, the, the snapshot that we see of the local church there in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We'll be returning to that again next week, but jumping ahead to the next text there in Acts chapter 3, we'll look at the whole chapter this morning and looking at this promised Messiah who will indeed do powerful Messiah-like works. We can trust him for the same Kind of give shape to, to our message this morning as an outline. Number one, first point that we'll, speak, uh, that we'll see is to offer the Messiah's mercy. Number two, proclaim the Messiah's message. As we look to the promised Messiah to do uh, powerful Messiah-like works, offer the Messiah's mercy and proclaim the Messiah's message. Pick it up with me in Acts chapter 3. I'll read the whole chapter as we begin. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. 
And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is God's word. The first thing we see here in the text that we want to argue is to offer the Messiah's mercy. Offer the Messiah's mercy. Our text opens up with Peter and John going up to the temple. It says there in the text, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now at this point in Jewish worship, there were two hours of prayer. There was a a 9 a.m. hour of prayer and there was a 3 p.m. hour of prayer. This would have been the 3 p.m. hour of prayer and they were uh, going up to uh, the temple, making their way to the temple for this time of prayer. Now it, it might seem strange to us that these Christians were attending the temple to worship. I don't know if that stood out to anybody, but Peter and John and Jesus has already come and why are they going to the Jewish temple for worship? But remember that this is still very early on in the, in the, the life of the church, very er, early on in the, in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a book of transition. All right, so, so prayers at the temple were apparently a part of, of their devotional rhythm in this early transitionary period in church history. So rest assured, we, we know that they were no longer looking to the Jewish faith apart from Christ for any sort of hope or righteousness. That's not why they were going there. They knew that their hope and their righteousness uh, relied solely on Christ, as we see from the rest of this passage. And so worship at the temple, it, it won't be a model for what Christians will continue to do, but it is what these Christians were doing here in this historical moment. And if you remember, we saw this already. We saw it in Acts chapter 2, right? In Acts chapter 2 that, that we looked at last week. And it gives us a snapshot of the early church, and it describes them as day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So this is what the, the church was, was doing at this time. And as Peter and John are going up to the temple for this hour of prayer, there by the gate is a man asking for alms, asking for money. This is a common scene at places of worship around the world, and, and indeed, even at churches. You'll often have people come to, to churches knowing that these are places of generosity and of benevolence, and, 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 and folks will come here to Delray and, and ask for help whenever help is needed. We have a, an entire uh, group of deacons uh, called our community care team uh, that is tasked with helping people in our community. And so people know rightly that, that people uh, of, uh, who, who worship God will, will often be generous and, and benevolent. And, and so we have that, and you see that all around the world. If you've ever traveled and been to temples, and indeed in many religions, that's, it, it's not just what, uh, as Christians, that's what Christians do. We, we give and we're loving and we're generous. Uh, but in many religions, it's, it's actually, that's a part of your righteousness that you would give to the poor, and you're earning something by doing that. And so this man was outside of the temple asking for alms, Uh, for the people who were going to worship. Now in verse two, if you look at verse two, verse two says that this man was lame from birth. Now if you look over at chapter four, I think it's chapter four, verse 22, it says that this man was 40 years old. So what that means is that uh, for four decades, this man has been unable to walk. Hasn't walked, he, he was lame from birth, he hasn't walked a day in his life for four decades. This man has been lame, unable to walk. And he's without any sort of uh, modern advances in medical equipment or anything like that, that he would have any aid in, in traveling around. It says, if you notice in the text, that he was laid at the temple. 
So he, he was literally being carried around by people, completely helpless, never walked, laid at the gate of the temple. And it says that he was laid at the gate of the temple each day. Now, the, the text doesn't spell this out specifically, but I think this is a safe assumption. We can infer this from the text. As this man was laid day by day at the temple, and as we see that the disciples at that point were going day by day, attending temple together, this is probably not the first time that Peter and John have, have encountered this man. This man's been there every day. They've been going there every day. This is not their first encounter with this man. But we know that something changed on this day. Something was different. This man who hadn't walked a day in his life, who was carried around completely relying on others, who begged for money every day, he locks eyes with Peter and John, expecting to get money, and he gets something so much better. Look at verse 4 again. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. What happens here? What is going on in this text? In the verses to come, Peter is going to explain to the astonished crowd that it was not by their power. He says, it's not by our power or piety that this man was made well. He's going to explain it's not by, it, it was not by our power that did this, but by the power of Christ alone. And then if you look over at verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, Peter says, in Jesus' name, by faith in his name, this man was made strong. Question, whose faith? By faith in his name, by, by faith in Christ, this man was made strong. By whose faith? Was it, was it the man's faith? Or was it Peter and John's faith? In the language, it could go either way. I, I certainly haven't read the entirety of scholarly opinion on this, but most that I have read conclude that the answer is yes. It's actually both. But initially, Peter and John. Because if you note in the text, when the man, the, the man isn't looking to Peter and John expecting to get some sort of healing from them, is he? He's expecting to get money. It's not like he sees, oh, I've been lame for 40 years. I've seen these guys every single day. And today I have faith that they're going to heal me. No, he's seen them day by day. And on this day, they walk up and they look and they say, look at us. And he says, all right, give me something. Now, in the events to come, I do think that, that this man also has faith as they say in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk, that, 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 that he actually believes that, that Jesus could do that for him. So I do think, but initially it is Peter and John's faith. Peter and John initially offer healing in Jesus' name by faith in his name and the man was made strong. So when you look at verses four and five, and you wonder, like, what is going on with all these looks? <laughs> like, you could just imagine, like, a director filming this, and you see Peter and John, they're coming up, and they catch the guy, and they look at him, and the guy looks back, and there's all these, like, gazes and looks going back and forth between Peter and John and the man. I think what is going on there, I think what Luke is doing in the text is showing us the moment when they have faith that Jesus is going to heal this man today. They've walked by him hundreds of times, and on this day, Jesus provides the faith and they look at the man and they say today's something different. Something different is going to happen to that man on this day. I think that's why Luke is giving us the, the gazes and the looks that are going on here. This is the moment that something clicked for Peter and John that this day was different. This day was a day of salvation for this man. 
The man they'd seen begging, the man who had begged for years, they looked at him and God gave the faith that today something awesome would happen, and it did. If I might pause just briefly here, church, would you pray that God would give you eyes of faith like this? That God would give you moments in your day where you say, I've had this conversation a hundred times and God has given me the faith that today something's going to be different. Pray that God would give you faith to see Christ at work and restoration and a relationship in your life that's broken that today could be different and change everything forever in that relationship. Pray that he would give you eyes of faith to see a breakthrough in a situation where you're helping somebody else out in counseling or mentoring or walking beside somebody else who's had a really difficult season that today could be the day of a breakthrough. For faith to see someone repent and trust Christ through your gospel witness when maybe you haven't seen that lately. Maybe you haven't seen that in a while. Maybe you haven't seen that ever. But you have faith that God, through your gospel witness and your proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that today something could be different. Ask him to give you eyes of faith. Maybe it's perhaps even seeing with eyes of faith for your own spiritual health and vitality in a, in a season of weariness. They said, God, give me eyes of faith to, to, to believe and to know that something could be different in my own life today. Pray that God would give you eyes of faith. That's what he does here for Peter and John. And they know it when they look at the man. Something's different. Something can change. Things can be different this day because the power and the love and the mercy that is in Jesus Christ. Well, this is what happens on this day. And in verse 6, you look at verse 6, Peter says, I, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have to you, uh, what, what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I, I've used the word Messiah a couple times this morning. Now, the, the, the word refers to the, the anointed one of God, the, the long-awaited and promised forever king. The Old Testament promises us that, that God would send his anointed one, send a Messiah who would come and who would reign, who would have an eternal throne and reign forever. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word for that same idea. So Christ isn't Jesus' last name. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not his last name. That, that's, that's the same idea. Messiah in the Old Testament, Christ in the New Testament in Greek. And if you look at our text, remember, you've, you've got to see the context. This is right outside of the temple in Jerusalem where people are going for Jewish worship, right outside of the temple in Jerusalem. Listen to what happens. Verse 6, in the name of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we say rise up and walk. Look at verse 18. Right outside of the temple in Jerusalem, God foretold by the prophets that his, what? His Christ, his Messiah, uh, would suffer, which is now fulfilled. Look at verse 20. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, the Messiah, appointed for you, that is Jesus. And another identity of Messiah in the Old Testament is seen in the book of Isaiah, especially as the, the suffering servant of God. And we see that idea here a couple times in their text as well. Look at verse 13. It says, God glorified his servant, Jesus. Verse 26, God having raised up his servant. 
So, so all I'm trying to get you to see here is, is kind of the, the, the Jewish context and what would be going here, things that we can read right past and it not even leave a dent for us. But if you were there in that day right on the steps at the gate, right outside the temple in Jerusalem and over and over again, the disciples are screaming, it is Christ the Messiah. He is the one. He came. He was the servant of God that Isaiah talked about. It was him. He came. He's the one that has the power to do this. God is fulfilling everything that the Old Testament said about him. The answer, you, you know, this, this, this miracle happens outside the temple. The answers you need aren't going to happen in there with dead religion. They're going to happen out here with Jesus, the Messiah who God sent to you. He's the one with power. He's the one with mercy. This whole passage is a huge road sign saying Jesus was the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And so we dare not miss that detail that this is done in the name they say of Jesus, the Messiah. It's the mercy and the compassion and the power of Jesus that does this. And so their point when they heal this lame man wasn't we, we don't have silver and gold, but what we do have is this, healing. That's not the point. We don't have silver and gold, but we can make you walk again. The point is we don't have silver and gold. You know what we have? We have God. We don't have money to give you, we have Jesus. And you're going to see the power of Jesus and what he's about to make you do so that that moves you to faith in him. His good gifts are meant to point us to the giver of good gifts. That's the point that they were making right here on the steps in front of the temple. Here is a display of his power and his mercy and his love. Lame man, we introduce you to Jesus. That's what we have. That's who we have. And then in verses 7 and following, the man is healed. <laughs> and if you look at the text, look at the extent of the power of Christ. Do you see it there? Full restoration. Not, not he, he gets up and he's kind of wobbly. Like I sit in the wrong position on the couch for like five minutes too long. And I'm like going to the fridge just, you know. Kind of do one of these. This man hasn't walked a day in his life. 40 years. Not wobbly legs. Not, not decades of, of, of rehab and trying to get his muscles to work. Instantaneously. Immediately. Full restoration. Not legs gradually waking up, but immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. The text is saying, clearly this is a miraculous work of God. This is the work of Jesus and the Messiah. We're seeing his power. Do you believe? His legs were strengthened. And look at what the text says. It says, leaping up. You see that? Leaping up. He stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them and walking and leaping and praising God. This is awesome. And it's to be expected. It's to be expected. Of course, the, the, the man is excited and not just standing, but walking, not just walking, but leaping. Of course, that's what he would do. If you hadn't walked for 40 years and you finally can, you'd run in laps around the building. And that's exactly what happens here. But Luke is doing something else in his description of this scene. The word that Luke uses for leap in verse 8 is extremely rare in the New Testament. And actually the form of the word he uses in, in Luke 8, or uh, um, in verse 8, um, is only used here in the New Testament. It's very, the, the, the word for leap, very rare, 
only in this form, in this verse in the New Testament. But it is used somewhere else. It's used in the Old Testament, in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 35. Listen to how this is used. I think this is intentional on Luke's part. Isaiah 35, this exact same Greek word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Starting in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and recompense, and with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This is envisioning the, the, uh, this eschatological day of, of Messiah and of his reign and what things will look at. Listen to verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man, that's the word, that Luke uses. He goes back and grabs that word out of Isaiah 35 and says, this is what is happening in your day. Then the eyes of the, the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Luke and the apostles are saying that day has come. The thing that you've been waiting so long for, the thing that Isaiah foretold, that day is now here. This man is now leaping and running around and rejoicing because Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. It's him we offer to you. We have nothing else to give. Christians, you have no silver and gold to give. You have Jesus. And it's in his powerful name that raises soul from, souls from the dead. In your ministry, in your, in your witnessing, in your relationships, in your parenting, it is him who gives life. And when he changes a situation, when he breathes that life into a situation, it can change things instantaneously. It can radically transform everything. It's not always the way he works. Sometimes the way he works and bringing restoration in our life is bit by bit and incremental and it's, it's years of, of tears and toil and hard work. But we have faith that he can do that and he can do the instantaneous. He can do the miraculous. It is Jesus we offer. He is the one who gives life to dead souls. I don't know if Garrett's, I'm sure Garrett's, uh, shared this, this illustration before. It was a, a, a preaching professor that he and I knew at one point who in his uh, seminary preaching class would take his first year preaching students and, and he would have them prepare a, a little a 15 minute, kind of like what we do on Sunday evenings, there's a 15 minute devotional and he would have his preaching class uh, prepare uh, their, their, their 15 minute devotional and then on the day that they were all supposed to show up to class and, and preach uh, their message from God's word, uh, he would say, okay, we're going on a little field trip. And they would leave seminary and, and they would walk down the street and they would uh, find a, a graveyard near, uh, near the seminary and he would um, have the, 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 the preacher stand, everybody else would kind of stand behind him and there's just rows of, of tombstones. And he would say, okay, preach your sermon. I'd be like, what are you, he said, seriously, go ahead. So I'd be like, all right. So he'd get up and he'd preach his little 15 minute thing and then the next guy would get up and they'd all preach their little 15 minute things and then he would turn around and he would say, only Jesus can raise souls from the dead. And it was a visual, visual reminder to them that, that your preaching has no power. <laughs> Jesus can say a word and empty all of these tombs. Never forget that. 
There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in Christ that we don't have. We have no silver and gold. What we do have is Christ. It's him we offer. So in this text, as we see the healing of this lame man, we see the, the mercy of the Messiah offered and received, and we see the power that that can have to transform lives. The second thing we see here in the, the, in the, the, the text is then a message. So you see a, a miracle and then a message. In the miracle, we see an offer of his, of his mercy, and in the rest of this text, we'll see a reminder to proclaim the Messiah's message. Pick it back up with me in verse 11. If you look there in chapter 3, verse 11, the, the, the lame man is clinging to Peter and John, and the, astonished, and the astonishment of the, the crowd continues. And then you look at verse 12. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. I'll just make a quick note of application here. Would we make all of our opportunities Jesus opportunities? I think you'll see that. We, we've seen it in the text already. We're going to keep seeing it as a pattern in the book of Acts. Would we make all of our opportunities Jesus opportunities? On this day, they see the lame man and they say, Jesus opportunity. And then, then a crowd gathers around and Peter says, Jesus opportunity. I'll admit to my own shame, there's been times where I've, I've, been, you know, I've been having a gospel conversation, maybe in a, in a coffee shop or a restaurant or, or, or at the gym with somebody or on a plane and, and, and I'm having a, a conversation with somebody and I notice somebody else kind of listening in kind of leaning over, and so sometimes they'll be like, man, I'm trying to have this conversation over here. And they would never do that. I, I, that's why I say that to my shame. I could be like, oh, you want to listen in? Come on, the, the more the merrier. Let's have this conversation. And that's what they do here. Peter looks at the situation. He's got this lame man, Jesus opportunity. Crowd, you want to gather around? All right, you're going to hear about Jesus. Let's go. They're making every opportunity an opportunity for the gospel. Would we have the, the eyes to see that and the, the boldness to do that likewise in our own lives and our own ministries. There's a friend, a gospel opportunity for that friend. There's a neighbor, gospel opportunity for that neighbor. There's a coworker, gospel opportunity for that coworker. There's a family member, gospel opportunity for that family member. How do I know that that's to be the case? Because God put you in their lives. And if you know the Lord, that is your job to let them know the Lord and to proclaim the gospel. There's a, uh, I shared this in the, the evangelism class a couple weeks ago, uh, but, but Dr. Bill Bright, who is the founder of, of Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, I heard him speak a number of years ago in, in Fort Collins, Colorado, and he was, he was telling, uh, this just stuck with me, he was telling a story of uh, whenever he would get a wrong, uh, a, a wrong number would call him. And this was like landlines, I don't know if you guys remember the cords and the uh, house phones. Um, and so uh, he, you would get these phone calls every now and then and somebody would call you and, and they would say, um, hey, is, you know, is Bob there? And they're like, oh, there's no Bob that lives here. And they'd be like, oh, sorry, wrong number. Bill Bright would be like, no, 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 no. Hold on, I don't think so. I don't believe in wrong numbers. I think you called for a reason. I know Jesus. Have you ever met Jesus? He would use those things just to, to use that to proclaim the gospel. There was no wrong. He's like, I believe in the providence of God. I don't think there's a wrong number ever called. So listen, if I can ever find the human behind the vehicle warranty stuff, like if, I don't know if you guys, people are super concerned about my vehicle warranty. And if a human ever calls me, be like, nope, now's the time. Uh, so let's get him. So Peter addresses the crowd, and his opening sentence here when he addresses the crowd is phenomenal. Look at this. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? 
I mean, in a sense, that's hilarious, isn't it? I mean, you, you would say, Peter, are you, are, you, are you seriously asking them this? Are you, are you seriously asking this crowd who's known this guy for four decades, who's never walked a day in his life, are you seriously asking this crowd who saw you take, by the hand, saw you take him by the hand and say, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk, and, and, and you do that, and he stands up and instantaneously starts running laps and leaping and praising and, and, and sprinting around the building. Are you seriously going to stand before this crowd who just saw this mind-blowing miracle, and you're going to ask them, why do you wonder at this? And Peter would say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to ask. That's exactly the right question, because they should know by now. They should know, because we were witnesses to his resurrection. They should know, you should know, everybody should know because of what we saw Jesus do, that God, uh, that, that he was put to death on the cross, he was buried, and then he burst forth out of the grave three days later. We were witnesses to this. He can do anything. Yeah, you should not wonder at this. You should not wonder when he changes a life and transforms our heart and does a radical work in your life or in somebody else's life. He says, no, you shouldn't wonder at that. Not if you really know who Jesus is. Not if you really know what he's capable of. Not if you really know the, the power that is in his name. Not if you really know that he is God. You should not wonder at this for a second. Away with your skepticism and trust in him who can raise the dead and do the impossible. Why do you wonder at this? This is who Jesus is. We should expect him to do such works. Verse 15 says he is the author of life. <laughs> you think he can't raise a guy from the dead? You think he can't make a lame man walk? You think he can't make a blind man see? He's the author of life. But no, the people stare in amazement. They think it's by Peter and James's power or piety. And so Peter does away with that interpretation. If you look at verse 13, he does away with that. And he says, Jesus did this. The, the Jesus who came to you and lived among you and loved you and ministered to you, Jesus, the, the holy and righteous one, but you plotted against him. And when Pilate gave you an opening to kind of give you kind of a window to get out of it, you doubled down on it and asked for a murderer to be released instead of uh, the son of God and the author of life, the holy and righteous one. You killed him, verse 15. He says, you killed him, which is a fact if, if you follow through the book of Acts. Peter is always going to take the opportunity to remind the Jews of that. He's over and over again, you did it, you did it, you did it. You killed Jesus. And so he does it again. He says, verse 15, uh, you, 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 uh, you killed him. You, you slayed the author of life. But he was raised from the dead, he says. And to this, we are witnesses. This message to the crowd at Solomon's portico has two parts to it. And so we saw the miracle in the first half of the passage, and then we see kind of the message in the second half of the passage. But, but even that message that we're looking at right now has two parts of it. The first part is, is him explaining what happened with the miracle, verses 11 to 16. And then the second half, verses 17 to 26, he's exhorting the people as to what they should do in light of it. So explanation of the miracle, exhortation of what to do in light of it. Uh, the first half is, is don't continue in your confusion about who Jesus is. The second is don't persist in your ignorance about the Messiah. Turn and trust in him. So that's what we'll look at now. Having explained the miracle, he turns to the second point of how they should respond. Look at verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He says they, they acted in ignorance. 
But what was foretold has been fulfilled. And the take home now is, is not who believed what and when, but you are called to do what, what you are called to do in response with the knowledge that you have. He says, repent and turn. Verse 19. So, so what God, verse 18, what, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian, you, you might wonder what, what is the point to all of this? that we're doing here this morning in this worship and the singing and the preaching and the praying. Or you, if you're here as a non-Christian, you might wonder where to begin. And this verse right here answers both of those questions. Jesus has proven that he is God through his miraculous birth, his, his miraculous and supernatural life, his death on the cross, his defeating death and rising again from the grave. And there were witnesses to that. This was a historical fact, a historical event he rose and he is God, and therefore we are faced with a fork in the road. All of us are faced with a, with, with a fork, with a decision. Do we follow him or do we reject him? You see, he, he loves you and cares for you. He wants to extend mercy to you, even to those who don't know him as, as Savior. Does this passage not tell us that? In Acts 2, we see an exploding of the church and we see 3,000 people added. But God also cares about the one. He sees the church growing and he, and he loves that and he sees that and that brings him glory. But in the very next passage, when, after you see 3,000 people being added to the church, he turns his attention to the one who doesn't know him, but who he loves. Maybe that's you today. The invitation is to likewise to turn and to trust it's a move of humility, confessing that, that you need your sins blotted out, as the text says, and that Jesus is the only way to do that because he took the penalty that your sins and my sins deserve. He did that. He, took, he died in our place on the cross. And friends, that word where it says, says uh, that your sins might be blotted out, look at verse 19, repent therefore and turn back. So, so turn from your way of doing things and trust in him that your sins may be blotted out. That word blotted, <laughs> it, it, uh, it's also used in Revelation 3 and Revelation 21 uh, to wipe a tear away. It's the same word that's used there, to wipe a tear away. The stain of our sin runs deep. But Jesus need not get down on his hands and knees and scrub and toil. He wipes it away and says, gone, gone. As easy as that, blotted, blotted out, sins removed, like wiping a tear off your face. That's what Jesus offers. And church, this is the gospel to which we still cling, is it not? We continually turn and trust in Christ and him we have forgiveness. You've messed up, I've messed up, but Christ washes us clean. Christ blots out our sins. You only need to turn from your sin and to trust in him and saints, this is good news. This is our message. The Christian life is a repenting life where we continually turn to him knowing that he is good and that he knows all of our stains and that Christ died to remove those. I think this text is interesting. Does Peter know a thing or two about grace and kindness and forgiveness and second chances? 
You think Peter knows that well? Peter knows this as well as anybody. In fact, I think the other, the other disciples must have seen some, some holy humor going on in this passage. Peter, Peter says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. But the other disciples would be like, Peter, what are you talking about? Do you remember this? Listen, this, <laughs> this is awesome. In, Pete, in uh, Matthew chapter 16, listen to Peter. From that time, so Matthew's telling this story, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Same Peter here. That say, so G, Peter tell, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That Peter who rebuked Jesus for saying he was going to die and suffer on the cross is right here standing before a group of worshipers outside of the temple. And he says, listen, guys, what God foretold from long ago that his Messiah would, would suffer and rise again from the grave, he thus fulfilled. Peter's come a long way since Matthew chapter 16, where he rebuked Jesus. Peter's come a long way from the garden when they tried to arrest him and he still is defending him and cutting body parts off of people. Peter's come a long way. He had his own doubts and faults, but now he knows. He knows because he saw Jesus rise from the dead and it changed everything. We often think about Paul's conversion on the Damascus road where, he was, where, where, where the Lord appeared to him in a blinding light. He who was persecuting the church and God changed his life. Just as miraculous as that is Jesus' appearance on the Emmaus road to the disciples who said, we thought Jesus was, was the, the one to redeem Israel, but he died, so I guess not. And Jesus comes and says, no, 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 let me show you in all of scripture where this is what God has always said would happen. This indeed was necessary for me to come and suffer and die so that there might be salvation. That has transformed Peter's life. The Emmaus Road conversion is just as powerful with those who think they know better than Jesus as the Damascus Road for those who oppose him. But he saw Jesus rise from the dead and it changed everything. Friends, regardless of your former ignorance, it is not too late. Regardless of the length of your rebellion, regardless of how dirty you perceive yourself to be, regardless of how far from God you feel, if you are hearing this message, it is God's mercy to you. You can repent and turn back and have your sins forgiven. God is kind and patient and forbearing with us, and his kindness, Romans 2 says, is meant to lead us to repentance. The Christian life is indeed a repenting life. And that message of verses 18 and 19 is really what the rest of the chapter unfolds in verses 20 to 26. It expands on that and repeats it. You actually see if you scan verses, uh, those verses, you'll see, you'll see the word prophets used five or six times. And the, the, the last chunk of that text is over and over again showing what the prophets said and what the prophets foretold and that Jesus has come. The, 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 the prophets foretold and pointed to a greater prophet, one who would come and suffer that he might usher in refreshing Verse 20 says that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. 
So indeed, Christ sits at God's right hand until one day he will return, verse 21 says, to restore all things. And in the meantime, verse 26, he intends to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. As Peter finishes his message to the crowd, he says, what you just saw with the lame man is exactly what Jesus wants, or what God wants to do for you in Christ. What you just saw with the lame man and this healing is exactly what he wants. In the same way you saw him restored, you saw a restoration of his muscles and his ankles and his strength, and the restoration that you saw there, that is the restoration that he offers to anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. This is what Christ does. This is his work. The word for refreshing, there, as you see it in verse 20, that times of refreshing may come. That, that word occurs only here in the New Testament, that word for refreshing. But it appears in other Greek writings. It, it's used in Homer. It's used in Hippocrates and elsewhere. The word is a word that has to do with wind. It was used, it was a medical term. In the same way that you would expose a wound to air, that wind might go in the air that would, that would hasten healing of a wound. That's the word that is used here, a time of refreshing. Something that, that wind could hit a wound and, and begin to heal it. It was also used in, in medical circles in the context of a, of a patient catching their own wind or catching their own breath. Having a, a time of refreshing between difficult surgeries, there would be a period in the middle where, where, where they would be able to catch their own wind and catch their own breath. Isn't that a beautiful image here? That Peter says, in Christ, what God is doing is bringing to you refreshing, healing, the healing wind of God, giving you a moment to, to come up for air, to catch your breath. He will bring refreshing. He will one day restore all things. Church, do, do you have wounds that need healed in your life? you feel like you just need to come up for air? That you, that you need to breathe? Come to Christ. Cling to Christ. He will bring refreshing and he will one day return and restore all things. He is the Christ, the holy and righteous one, the author of life who was appointed for those who would turn from their sin and trust in him. Don't forget the power of Jesus. He is alive and active. He loves the 3,000 and he loves the one. He still does the powerfully miraculous and delivers a powerful word. Since Jesus has clearly proven to be the promised Messiah, we should look for him to do powerful Messiah-like things. That's indeed what he is doing, what he desires to do in each of our lives. I pray that we would offer and receive the Messiah's mercy with all the opportunities that we have and that we would proclaim and hear the Messiah's message in our lives. There is power in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for that healing refreshment in our lives. God, we long for the day when Christ, the Messiah, the, the promised one, will return and set all things right. Will return to bring ultimate restoration and healing and final salvation and glorify us with him in your presence forever. Would you give us the faith to um, run the race until that day? Would you give us the, the um, intentionality and the strength with one another 
to help each other along to that day? Would you help us to cast our eyes there and have that be our hope and point others to that day as we wait and we say, come soon, Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name, his powerful name. Amen.